Ezekiel, <clears throat> chapter 34, verses 11 to 16. You don't have pew Bibles, do you? No. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they are scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out of the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself would judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you shove with flank and shoulder, butting all the weak sheep with your horns until you have driven them away, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another, and I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love of all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his uncomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body and fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who were cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ the word. And I'd like to invite uh, Ben up to bring us a sermon this morning. I'm just going to get rid of these. This is the Sunday of Christ the King. And I have a grey beard and I have been an Anglican for as long as I can remember. And oddly, I've never noticed that there's a Sunday of Christ the King before. So there we go. Um, and so that kind of got me started with, well, what's it for then? And it turns out that it's quite new. Christ the King is not an ancient festival. It was introduced by Pope Pius XI in about 1925. And Pope Pius XI felt that uh, a feast to honour Christ the King would be a good antidote to the political troubles that he saw around him at the time. Um, the sort of mid-20th century was a, a bad time for much of Europe. Um, and so I thought it might be worth thinking about um, whether some of the things that, that he thought Christ's kingship might tell us about politics might, might be useful or true for us. Especially because I think there are some loose similarities between um, Pope Pius's times and our own. Um, I'm not suggesting that things have got that bad yet, um, but you can see some parallels. So, um, so what was the politics? Well, um, this is the interwar period, so Europe has just torn itself apart in the First World War in a way that people hadn't really imagined was possible, slaughter on an industrial scale. Um, and after the First World War, um, I think we're accustomed these days to think of Europe as a place of sort of political stability and robust democracy, but that really wasn't the case in the 20s. Um, and countries were really struggling to maintain a, a sort of central 
basis for, for consensual political authority. There was a lot of economic inequality. There was a lot of insecurity about nationhood, Italy particularly, where the Pope is, um, is, has only sort of gets unified at the end of the 19th century, and it was a bit shaky. Um, and that inequality and insecurity fueled a lot of political polarization. Um, people tried to fix the problems with um, dramatic calls for solidarity behind their ideologies, that, and particularly rather opposed ones. It was the rise of communism in Europe and also the rise of fascism in Europe. Um, and I, uh, a friend of mine wrote a PhD about kind of the grim story of democracy collapsing in one country after another in Europe as, as they failed to manage those tensions, both, both the economic ones and the ideological ones. It just became too hard to find a kind of middle ground that everybody could agree on. So um, then and now, well, it's not as bad as that. But uh, Tim, I think, gave me this one because I'm occasionally gloomy. And I say, well, you know, there are little echoes of the 1930s. Um, rising inequality, uh, a lack of faith in political leaders, uh, a tendency to try and cut through that by strong polarizing appeals, often xenophobic, um, often racist, um, and those are a symptom of kind of deeper problems. So, like I'm saying, we're not in the 1930s yet, but there are, there are some echoes of the same kinds of issues, I guess, that um, Pope Pius was trying to deal with. Um, so what did old Pope Pius say should be done about it? Well, he, he issues this, his encyclical that, that introduces the feast. And I'm about to say some rude things about his political judgment. So before I do, um, it was a feast. It was the feast of Christ the King, quite deliberately so. So everybody should go out and feast after this service. And it was a feast because Pope Pius thought that a feast would have a lot more in impact, particularly on the laity, than just a normal part of the lectionary. So yeah, that, that's my, my good political judgment. My less good political judgment, and I'm being a bit unfair to Pius here because I'm drawing out one strand of actually quite a complicated, long encyclical, but one strand that was definitely there um, is kind of my, my straw man for the day of, of what I think may not be a good um, political response. Pius was inclined to see the collapse of political authority in Europe around him as um, basically due to secularism. And I'm not entirely sure I disagree with him on that, but the solution for it, he said, was that um, unless rulers can reasonably be seen as deriving their authority from God, he argued, then government will be on a shaky foundation. Because um, human beings set apart to rule are bound to make mistakes because human beings are a bit hopeless. Um, and the only way we can really forgive those mistakes if we're willing to see those people as nonetheless put there by God. So the first part was basically godly rulers probably instructed nicely by the Catholic Church, about a couple of paragraphs later. Um, and uh, to be fair, he also thought that those rulers, you know, did need to live up to the claims. So it wasn't just that you chose somebody who claimed to be um, of God, but he also had lots to say about how rulers needed to see themselves as subject to Christ's kingship and to rule in, um, you know, justly and in the common interest. Um, so, like I say, I've got some sympathy for Pius's problem definition. Um, there's a patch where political authority, where appeals to who we are, were being made on pretty dodgy grounds. You know, they were exclusionary who's, they were racist who's, they were perhaps... Um, Sorry. My scratching and rustling. I'll try not to move so much as well. I do kind of do that a bit when I talk. Um, 
so, um, so, you know, some other basis might be better, um, and that's fine. But where I'm not so sure is, is that what we want is divinely appointed rulers who claim that they rule in the name of God. What could possibly go wrong um, from the history of Europe? Or in our present times, um, I will just point out that there are some on the kind of conservative evangelical fringe who talk about Donald Trump in very much those terms as the person that God has chosen to be the person for America at these times and therefore somebody who can't be questioned. So I'm not too keen on that version of how Christ the King might speak into our politics. Um, but how else might Christ the King speak into our politics? Um, well, what, I, what struck me, I guess, from the readings that we've just had um, is, a, a, is kind of how broad this concept of kingship is. It's a very powerful word, king. has a lot of associations for us. And um, the, the kingship of Christ particularly puts two things together that I think in our normal human experience don't fit very well. One of those things... Um, is the side of kingship that's quite fairy taley uh, Majesty, magnificence, power, sophistication, glory, you know, the, the big gold crowns, the mighty thrones, the distant person put above us all. And then the other side of kingship that we get from, from the kingship of Christ is this humble servant caring and for and loving their people. And I'm not saying that those two things could never go together, but I am suggesting that for most of our human experience, actually they pull in quite different directions. And that's going to be kind of most of the theme of, of, of what I say for the rest of this and sort of how we might deal with that, I guess. So first of all, I think, just, just to, to bring that out from the readings, this radical putting together of those two things when we talk about the kingship of Christ. Um, so the reading from Ephesians gives you that glorious kingly majesty, that that awe-inspiring Christ. Um, Christ was raised from the dead and seated, uh, sorry, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And he has put all things under his feet. So this is the awesome Christ, if you like. Um, and then that's kind of subverted by the other stories we get in the other readings. Um, I'll, I'll pull it back together at the end, by the way, because Ephesians, it depends how you read your Ephesians. But for now, um, for me at least, there's a jarring between that concept of powerful, distant and aloof, and then the God that we get in Ezekiel. And so in Ezekiel, we have the all-powerful God behaving as a humble shepherd. Shepherds in the end are servants to their sheep. And the Ezekiel reading is about you know, gathering up the strays and the wounded and the weak um, and having not much time for the big, rough, tough sheep that get stuff done with their horns and the butting and the flanks and all that, right? Um, uh, and then uh, bringing politics back in, towards the end, God says that he will set David over them as their prince. And the prince, uh, note that this is a, some kind of symbolic David because Ezekiel's writing after David's been king. So we're talking... Jesus, basically. Um, to cut a long story short, when, when David is set over them as their prince, it's still his job to feed them and be their shepherd. Um, so again, we're getting this kind of, this, I think, quite jarring use of, you know, when we say power and being set above, there's this sort of distant vision of 
some unapproachable figure. And then the power is being used in these ways in a very humble, lowly, connected with the poor kind of a way, which I, I personally think is still quite a disjunction for our kind of... It's a thing to look to rather than that maybe we experience that much in our current world. And then in Matthew, again, we get the same things. Um, Matthew begins by saying, uh, the, the passage from Matthew begins by saying that when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and judge. And we're back in more traditional kind of conceptions of kingship, right? Uh, the mighty judging one sitting on a throne. But then straight away, what kind of judgment is being exercised into whose interest is the judging going on? And then we get the long passage about um, you know, the people who I'll judge in favour of are those who've been caring for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the naked and the sick and the imprisoned and that kind of long, long list. So there's my big contradiction um, that at least, you know, that, that Christ can bring those things together. But I'm not sure that humans can much. Um, and that's sort of going to be my, my kind of my message for politics, I guess. Um, and that ambiguity, in fact, is very present in the Bible too, an ambiguity about kingship. So although you know, we're claiming this, this kingship for Christ, and Christ is very special and that's associated with good stuff, in fact, when kings are first introduced in the Bible, back in 1 Samuel 8, you may remember that God is pretty upset when the Israelites ask for a king. Um, they, Samuel's kind of getting old, and the Israelites say, we want a king to rule us and go out and fight for us. And God says to them, uh, God says to Samuel, before they ask for this, tell them what kings are really like. What they can expect from their king is that the king will tax them. The king will force them to die for him. The king will take their children into his service. The king will make slaves of them. That's a, you know, it's a bit of a paraphrase, but that's basically what it says. Um, and also the kings that appear in the Bible are pretty mixed. You know, even David, who is a, a king after God's own heart, stuffs things up pretty badly from time to time. Um, so I'm suggesting that there is a gap between, you know, that, that it's dangerous to leap too quickly from Christ the King and Christianity is good to we need a good Christian king, okay, or president or leader or whatever it might be. I'm not saying that, that, um, that it's bad to have a Christian king, but I'm suggesting that we shouldn't expect that to solve all our problems, I guess. So, um, so let's get back to sort of politics, or at least a political message for our times, I guess. There are many, many messages that there could be, but here's the one that came to me from what I was reading. Um, and it's all about this, this kind of um, tension between power and majesty and glory on the one hand, and the idea that what that power and majesty and glory should ideally be set to do is to judge fairly, and particularly for the poor and for the weak, and to kind of encourage love and care in the kingdom. Um, and my suggestion is that, that while Christ can, can pull that off, we should be a little bit anxious before we wish for a big figure to come and solve all our problems through politics. Um, I mean, we can wish for it and we can hope for it, but we shouldn't expect it, at least. And my suggestion is that, that power can get good things done. Um, we, we need, I kind of think we need order, even, um, because otherwise things can get even worse. But there's only so much that power in a kingly, on a throne kind of a way can get done. And I think partly because um, rulers have to govern us. Um, and however good the ruler is, they've still got to govern us. And we are by no means perfect. Um, and in fact, you know, 
perfect government is hampered by non-perfect humans. And so I think we need the kingdom to come from below as well as from above, I guess is what I'm saying. You know, that, that politics isn't going to be fixed without us fixing ourselves. That, um, and, and that we, we shouldn't expect somebody to be able to fix us all without us fixing ourselves. So we need both. Um, we, we, need, we need power because it has its uses, and we also need to keep our minds on what the power is supposed to do and on that, that more radical, subversive kind of thing. I have to say, I've had Sunday school running through my head. Um, I've had two Sunday school songs. I've had Who's the King of the Universe, J-E-S-U-S is, right? That's one side. And then I've had We Have a King Who Rides a Donkey on the other side. And that's sort of um, another way of putting my themes. Um, <laughs> just, to, just to bring it back to earth a little bit. Um, so, so if people are hard to manage and people are, um, are a problem and rulers aren't going to come and fix that, my suggestion is that maybe the, the place to begin is, is probably a more humble, perhaps less optimistic vision of politics. Um, and so here I draw on um, the good Dr. Schick, who should be here but has been nabbed by my small daughter. Uh, and in her political writing, she likes to say that um, wisdom begins with equivocation. She has this philosopher called Gillian Rose, who emphasizes the difficulty of making the world a better place. It's not that we shouldn't do it, but that we should always know that it's difficult. And equivocation because uncertainty, humility, that humility is actually a really strong political virtue because fixing stuff is so hard. There's always a danger that we'll try to take a shortcut based on however well-meant conviction. We'll be tempted to try to use power to make everything better in ways that are shortcuts that maybe we can't really have because of the, the broken world that we live in. And I'm not, and so I think, so the next stage is to say, but what are sh we sure we can do for politics as Christians? And part of that is to be good Christians. Um, and I'll talk more about what that might be in a moment. But before I do, I'm not saying that that means we shouldn't get involved in politics and that we shouldn't sometimes use power for good. It's just that it's really risky. And there are all sorts of dangers attached to doing that. And perhaps particularly when you combine it with a, a Christian view that you hold the truth. Because I think that, that can be a dangerous, slippery slope in a complicated world. So back to the what can we do and the, and the good stuff that sits underneath that and what it means to be a good Christian. Well, back to Ephesians. Um, so the bit from Ephesians that we got invoked this vision of Christ in all his power. And it was invoked in the context of, of telling the Ephesians to cling to the hope that we've been given. So it was, you can hope because God is really powerful. But what Paul then goes on to tell them to do isn't particularly to be powerful in that kingly sense. For the, if you go and look through the rest of Ephesians, it's a great deal about um, loving one another in all humility, bearing with each other with patience, which I think is a nice political moment for our times. Um, and, um, and the other bit that I particularly love, so live in love and humility, bearing patiently with each other. And then later on, Ephesians talks about a body of Christ in which each ligament is built together with love. So I guess, you know, a part of our politics that we mustn't neglect is, is to build a body of Christ together through each ligament, joining with love. Um, as the thing to not forget in times when politics starts to look nasty and it starts to look like there are high stakes and there are different sides um, and, um, 
and that it's, it really matters because the powerful are supposed to come and fix everything or come and destroy everything. Um, so I guess my, my big message from all of this is a, is a, a sort of humble Christ the King I, for now, with perhaps the, the, the coming in power to fix everything as more something that happens at the second coming. And in the meantime, um, to, to work in humility and love uh, and to try to, to bear with one another patiently. And in that spirit, I mean, I think exactly what that means for our politics. Again, I don't want to encourage a sort of holy quiescence of monastic staying out of things. I think we need to engage. But just to highlight, you know, the risks that can come with, with too much faith in power and the polarisation that that produces. And so I have kind of a cute story from one of my new colleagues. So as you know, I, I used to be at Vic, probably some of you know, I used to be at Vic teaching politics, which I think is why I got this one to do. Uh, and now I work at the Reserve Bank, sort of doing politics or not, depends who you ask. Um, anyway, <laughs> we have, yeah, I know it's fun at the moment. So we have a, um, we have a, a Wednesday Christian fellowship in the Reserve Bank. Uh, and I probably should have, I should have brought uh, the, so, and different people lead it different weeks. And a couple of weeks ago, one of my colleagues, I thought it was very brave of him. He, he did a presentation where, he, I mean, a, a little thing where he talked to us about um, how he'd been interested in the idea of blessing and of blessing as a positive thing that we can do, a way of feeling good about the world and walking around and, you know, blessing people and offering them blessings. And then he courageously, I think, in Wellington, admitted that he was really disappointed about the outcome of the election and it made him really down. He doesn't like Jacinda. He doesn't like what Labour does. Um, and he was really, you know, he was clearly quite upset about it. Um, but. The, the rather beautiful response that he had, given his blessing, was that he's been spending his lunch times walking around the parliamentary precinct, which is just across the road from us, praying blessings on Jacinda and praying blessings on the new government. And I thought that may not be the solution to all our politics, but it's maybe at least a kind of useful thing to bear in mind as we kind of deal with the, the mess around us. Can I do a quick prayer to finish? Thanks. Um, Dear God, thank you that you are king and that you sit in majesty over us and that you have redeemed us and that your, your great power has offered us a place in the kingdom. Meanwhile, we live in a place where that kingdom hasn't quite come and where we see a lot of things around us that, that upset us and upset us in good ways for good reasons, I think. Um, and we also are privileged to live in a place where we have at least some minor influence over how those things play out, particularly maybe for folk in Wellington. Um, help us always to make sure that if we engage in politics and we engage in power, um, we do it with you as our king. And we remember both the good that can be done through power and the dangers of it and particularly the need for power always to be about promoting humility, promoting love, promoting peace, uh, and promoting understanding between us so that we can build together the body of Christ one ligament at a time. Amen. <laughs>